Welcome back to another episode of Geek Warning, everybody. It's Tuesday, March 21st. It'll be the 22nd by the time you listen to this podcast. We've got a great show for you today. We're, we're not live today. We decided we're actually going to we're gonna dial back the live shows just a little bit to make some space for some of the other podcasts that, we are, uh, that we're producing. I think Wheel Talk is going to be live this week. Uh, I think it's going to be a... Actually, a live show at the end of Gent Wethelgum, which is which is going to be pretty cool. So it's just the three of us today. How are you, Dave Rum? I'm well. I'm very well. I'm uh, yeah. Had a large article go up, so I'm feeling a little uh, sense of relief now. So thank you. <laughs> Six thousand words about the new SRAM mountain bike drivetrains that have murdered, in your own words, uh, mm. the derailleur hanger. So we're going to talk. Obviously, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. There, there is a, a deep dive podcast you did with somebody from SRAM already up mm-hmm. on the channel. So if you haven't yep. caught that, go go catch that. But we're gonna we're gonna dive into it. Just the three of us here. Ronan, how are you today? Um, good. Well, tired is that maybe the right word? I, I've spent the entire day trying to get through Dave's Dave's review of the new SRAM stuff. So. Um, <laughs> Three or four settings. At one stage, I almost reached for a caffeine gel, but um, I, I, I put it, I put the iPad down. I'll come back to it uh, later once we finish this pod. <laughs> I, I, my goal with with working at Escape Collective is just to create content that consumes the lives of everyone else that works at Escape Collective. <laughs> that's all we. It's all we do is we just edit Dave's stuff. We got like eight people yeah. on staff. Uh, yeah. just ready and waiting at any, at any given yeah. moment. And that was well, the brief version. You should have seen what I cut. I mean, wow. <laughs> of course, of course. I, I really, I enjoyed some of the comments that popped up and people appreciating the fact that, well, because of the way that our model works and the way that we are funded, they felt like they could sort of fully believe, truly believe everything that you had written, which was pretty cool. Mm. And, and And like, I think historically... All of us have been around the the block a couple times, and and you know I, I don't think that that actually I know that that piece isn't any different than anything you would have written throughout your entire career, but hmm. it isn't isn't it kind of nice to not be questioned because of the model yeah. shift? I think that's really yeah. nice. Yeah, it's it certainly is a relief to not have to justify uh, that I am independent, but. One, I saw one question come up about the podcast and the podcast I did with Lachlan McKillop from SRAM uh, about whether that's sponsored content. And it's not. Uh, we will be doing deep dives on the Geek Warning channel from time to time, uh, especially when large product releases come our way or come the way of the industry. And when we have the opportunity to speak to representatives of the brand for a, a proper deep dive, we, we will take that opportunity. And none of that's going to be sponsored. And if you ever hear a sponsored content from us you'll know it's sponsored content because we will very clearly tell you it is uh so yeah that's that's something you can expect more of with large product releases but so uh, yeah just know that that was purely uh because we thought it was interesting not because we're getting money for it we actually haven't taken a single dollar of of ad spend ad revenue uh mm. thus far and, and that isn't to say that we never will i i, I we've said this a number of different times but we're not not really we're not anti-advertising and and it's more that we're anti like sneaky advertising and also anti-annoying advertising uh so those two things like annoying pop-up ads or 
things w- that pretend to be editorial that actually aren't not into those things. Uh, but yeah, I mean like there's going to be, there's going to be ads on podcasts and things like that in the future. Probably not on this podcast, but on placeholders mm. on pretty serious bike racing on wheel talk, definitely have ads and all those, but yeah, not a single dollar so far. So you can, uh, you all, everyone out there can rest assured that everything, every single word that Dave Rome put in his 6,000 word piece on this new SRAM was just straight out of his own head <laughs> and his own and his own analysis and his own own opinion which kind of brings us to a bit of self promotion dave mm. what are we asking people to do we really want people to subscribe to escapecollective.cc uh it's how we're funded it's how all three of us and james who's about to join the pod when he comes off his uh, little time off and uh and everyone else is part of the team. It's how we are getting paid and it's how we're making our livelihood happen. Uh, and without your subscriptions, this doesn't continue. I think the other big point here, beyond the fact that obviously if people don't sign up, then we don't get paid. But the, the, the sort of bigger point for all of you out there is that signing up means that you get what you want and essentially what you're paying for, right? Because if you sign up, then we can continue to make the stuff that you're asking for. That's the whole, that's the beauty of the model that we're working under. It's, it's, it was, it's been I think, very obvious over sort of the first weekend that we've existed and extremely obvious in, in Dave's SRAM piece this morning is that you get what you are asking for, which is, which is depth, not breadth, which is honesty, which is a site that you can absolutely trust, which is a huge deal on the tech side. Uh, yeah, you get all these things for your membership. That's that's the big that's the big push here. That's that's so, a, yeah. that's a much better pitch than me just saying I, I need money to buy tools. Um, <laughs> both are true, but I, I mean, I think it's, true, it's, it's but, two different ways of saying the same thing, Dave. Like, yeah. if people don't sign up, then none of us have jobs. Also, if people don't sign up, none of this exists. This podcast doesn't yeah. exist. Placeholders doesn't exist. The entire site doesn't exist. We go back to, you know, you have to get your your cycling and tech news from uh places that want to bombard you with with pop-up ads so that's not fun mm-hmm. the other side mm-hmm. that non-members may not have seen is just the whole community that's sort of developed since since we launched this thing uh especially especially within the discord uh i i didn't really realize until this setup that i've had discord for about four years apparently or well since the pandemic <laughs> anyway i must try it out on zwift or something Never used it. Never was part of any other communities. Never, never, never clicked on the app. And now I can't put it down because the just the chat that's going on between our members within that Discord group is is just fascinating. There's always something else you want to dive into. There's always a conversation you want to be part of. And I described it to someone the other day as it's like the internet without any of the nastiness. Uh, and and that's kind of what the community is. It's just like good description. It, it's the cycling internet without any nastiness, which I really like. Yeah. The the only thing I'll add is that uh, Kelly mentioned um, depth, not breadth. And uh, I think that's a very key point is that this SRAM piece is a good example of areas that we'd like to expand into, but we're not staffed for at the moment. James and myself are, are very well versed in the mountain bike sphere, but we want to do mountain biking properly and we need more members in order to to make that happen. You know, at the moment we're staffed 
well for the road side. We're not staffed to cover the mountain bike side the way we want to, and and that'll come with membership. Um, so for me, that's that's an exciting thing, and that's something I'm going to keep pushing for because more members that come my way, the the closer I can uh, get to having the content that I really want as well. So there's that. Yeah, and we don't want we don't want to sort of move into those spaces until we can really do it properly, right? So you're you're going to mm-hmm. get the occasional piece like what Dave wrote this morning. Uh, frankly, because that you know the new SRAM stuff probably has implications well beyond mountain biking is the other reason Absolutely. Why we wanted we wanted yeah. to run that. But for us to do you know to drop into mountain biking or drop into bike packing or or whatever, yeah, we need more resources. We need and because we want to be able to do it properly. Because again, that's what you're expecting. That's what you're paying for. If we can't do it properly, then then what's the point? Because if, if we're gonna if we're gonna half ass mountain bike, why would you give us a hundred dollars for it? Right. Uh, so we have to be able to sort of go all the way. And we essentially have have sort of revenue or membership triggers for, for that sort of thing. That's the way that this whole thing is going to work. So anyway, this is a, a bit rambly version of us yeah. telling you to sign up, head to escapecollective.cc, sign up if you haven't already. Uh, we all appreciate it. Like genuine thanks. Uh, it's also, I think, the best. It's, it's an investment in the, in the content that you want to see. Otherwise, we wouldn't be trying this. So, fellas, we have a fair number of things to talk about today. We've got some broken Bianchi bar, something we never want to be talking about. But unfortunately, I think we have to talk about a little bit today. We've got a bit of MSR tech, Melanson Remo tech. We've got a dirty, dirty Dave, uh, of course, because it's my favorite thing to say. We are going to talk a little bit more about overstock and clearance sales and the industry glut that appears to be here and then we've mm-hmm. got a few things that are on our mind and over the heads of our family. And, of course, we've got a PSA for you today. That's a so lot. Let's get, that's a lot. Well, I, we always sort of list these things in the beginning, and sometimes we don't actually get to some of them. Uh, and I, I don't, people sometimes know this. They're like, you said you were going to talk about this thing, and then you never did. And that's just because we went too long. And yeah. else. So maybe that'll happen again today. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. let's get – I had Mal edit out. A lot of that from uh, last week's episode from your intro. <laughs> so a lot of people don't know. But anyone that had tuned into the live audience would have been like, what? Where's, where's half the episode that you promised? Yeah, that happens somewhat more often yeah. than not, I would say. Yeah. So let's start with a somewhat unfortunate topic. Two, actually, two different sets of broken Bianchi bars. This was from two different crashes, if I remember correctly. Ronan, what? What exactly are we talking about here? I mean, broken bars are always a scary thing. So let's let's. We're we're talking about uh, Hugo Hofstetter, who rides for Arkea Samzik, was racing in the Grand Prix de Nantes in France last week. It's a race that used to be a sprinter's race, but a few years ago they threw in a heck of a lot of cobbled sections into it. So it's now almost like a mini Paris Roubaix, and actually includes a few sectors that are identical to those used in Paris Roubaix. So it's very challenging race. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, and Hofstetter was actually, I think he was sort of one of the favorites or perhaps an outside favorite coming coming into the race. Um, French rider, rides for French team uh, and, and what has become a big race. So um, I think it was with about 50 kilometers to go, he was involved in a crash. And I actually seen that one. And after the crash, he was chasing back on. And I didn't know if I was, if it was, I was kind of watching it on iPad. It was in the workshop doing something. And I didn't know for sure if I was imagining it or if it was because it was on an iPad or what, but it looked like his lever was vibrating on the cobbles more than 
his handlebar was, or it just looked out of sync, his lever. And then all of a sudden the camera cut back to him and his handlebar, the non-drive side of his handlebar was dangling and was only held in place with the 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 brake the brake hose uh, from the lever to the to the, the brake caliper. So yeah, he suffered a, a broken handlebar in the crash. Not abnormal for a handlebar to break, especially with you know. Let, let's assume he crashed at with some sort of at, at pace with some sort of force on to cobblestones with carbon handlebars. It's, it's not out of the ordinary that they might break in that in that scenario. Um, I think you know he's probably kind himself lucky that they were initially broken but not snapped, and then they snapped and he didn't crash again. So that that was probably good for him. Uh, but then the camera cut back to him with about thirty kilometers to go, and apparently he had been involved in a second crash, and the the he had already changed to a spare bike. Obviously, he couldn't ride for twenty kilometers on a bike with half a handlebar. Um, although that is something I will come back to in a second. But uh, when the camera cut back to him with about 30 kilometers to go, he had gotten on a spare bike, crashed again, uh, apparently, and the handlebar on the spare bike had suffered the same fate on the opposite side. So the drive side of his handlebars on the spare bike had had snapped uh, also. And I mean like a complete brake dangling there by the brake hose again for anybody that hasn't seen it. Um, and then Q. And this is the integrated handlebar on the new Bianchi. What's what's the model? It's the new like? Bianchi Ultra RC that was. It was only launched last September, October time. Uh, to much sort of. Uh, I was going to say fanfare, but it wasn't really fanfare that it was launched to. It was. Uh, it, it was launched to. I, I think it's maybe unfair to Bianchi, but it's fair to say it was launched to to much ridicule. Uh, I I took a kind of deep dive into it at the time. And looked at some of the sort of claims that they were making about that bike, and I still never had a chance to to ride it. Uh, but anyway, it is what it is. RK are riding the bike this year, uh, and now that same bike has suffered a double handlebar failure. Which, again, one you can understand, but two, in such quick succession, Twice as many, yeah, um, it, it it just it's you can understand a second crash could well have been the exact same fate as the first one. Uh, high impact on carbon bars on cobbles but also you're kind of thinking really can that happen twice in such quick succession so it's it's worth noting that bianchi has come out they're very quick to respond to this uh and they came out with an official statement saying this was crash damage you know pressures of racing and yes you know a carbon handlebar that suffers a a heavy impact at a high speed crash is is probably going to be a point of failure we know this this is why a lot of pros have traditionally in the past chosen to use aluminium handlebars over carbon because in the event of a crash those bars would probably bend and they could keep racing uh so i mean this isn't this isn't necessarily a new thing but i guess from my point of view and maybe ronan yourself as well i'm i'm actually i agree that it was the crash that caused these bars to break the two separate crashes my concern is is that in both crashes they cause the handlebars to break in the same spot, which to me shows a potential weakness in this handlebar. So yeah. that's that spot was essentially right at the clamp, right? No, it was, from what I could see, it was past the clamp. So it was kind yeah, of like just past. Like, if clamp, you imagine like the above. the bend of the handlebar, or it's just on the extreme of the bend. So um, so it's past the clamp. Uh, towards above, the top of above the or below, above, 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 the clamp? above, as as it kind of curves back to being uh, the flat section, the straight section of the handlebar, which for me kind of makes me think that it's not 
pretty similar to a lot of other carbon handlebar issues we've seen in the past where that curvature there is actually the hardest part to get compression in the material. It's sort of a, a known issue, a known problem within some of the industry handlebars. I know Salsa had a recall of their handlebars for for this where, uh, yeah, basically that, that curve is very tight and it's it can be hard to get um, – proper compaction of the of the carbon there and it is quite easy to therefore have a a weak spot in that in that place and i mean this is probably wild speculation but it's uh yeah i mean the fact that they both broke there kind of for me just makes me worried that there is a weak spot in that bar yeah i mean my, my first thought looking at it was just like the same mechanic over torqued two different <laughs> two different bikes yeah. because because it is close enough to that clamp that you know, yeah. That, like yeah. If, if I'm if I'm looking at, at the sort of all the different variables that would potentially cause this sort of thing, the fact that the bike was worked on by the same person, that is a that's a feasible one to me. That that was any, that was the first thing mm-hmm. that, that popped into my head anyway. Yeah, it's hard. I think it's hard to say from the video that I saw exactly where the break is. So from that point, you kind of we're just speculating. But I think that is a another viable option here is that there was a bit of not user error on the on the part of Hofstetter, although I guess technically if you fell down twice, that's kind of user error. <laughs> uh, but but potentially on the on the part of a mechanic there, not to throw that mechanic under the bus. I don't know who that is. Yeah, I mean, to your point, Derek, if you crash on carbon bars, you know, any of them can break. So I think user error in a race like Denan is a bit a bit harsh on Hofstetter here. But I, I get your point. But it's also also worth pointing out that. Bianchi have said, uh, and hear me out in this one, they've said that all their, th- these bars included and in, in all their Bianchi products have passed the ISO 4210 uh, standard, which to me, when I read that, I was like, really what I wanted them to be saying there is that they've gone above and beyond the ISO standard. Because um, I think as we've heard uh, several times previously is that that standard might not really be up to the sort of, it, it might not be relevant enough for an incident like this, Hofstetter riding on cobbles or crashing on cobbles. Uh, this, yeah, you know, and it, then continuing. Yeah, yeah. And and that's sort of, okay, it passed the standard and that's all it has to do. But for me, I would much prefer had they come out, I, I'd, be, I'd have much more confidence in it had they come out and said, look, we have taken this to, uh, ISO is, a, I think it's something like uh, for handlebars, is it dropping a, a fixed weight once on the handlebar? That fixed weight is, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head now, anyway, but it is one fixed weight dropped on the handlebars once, if I remember correctly. Uh, and some brands are like repeating that fixed weight um, drop and lift up to th- thousands of times. Uh, so they're going above and beyond ISO standard that way. And that's, I think, had this, uh, certainly a couple of brands I know had this happen to them, they'd be saying, look, not we meet ISO, but we go beyond that. And uh, yeah, had I heard that from Bianchi, I might have more confidence in this right now. Yeah, I mean the ISO test. Uh, a lot of that is to do with like fatigue testing as well. Um, what we're looking at here, though, is the crash actually. Uh, I guess puts an impact where it's it's effectively uh, shearing the handlebar in towards the bike, and that's not that's not a failure mode that I. Th- I, I could be mistaken and hopefully someone corrects me on this, but I, I don't believe that's part of the ISO test, that sort of failure mode, because it's not it's not a directional force that you'd experience while riding the bike. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, we've seen other handlebars fail in this regard before. And I think that's a, 
an important note to make is that yes, the handlebar has gone through all these these ISO tests, but what it hasn't gone through is a test that probably uh, you know someone stood on the handlebar, like you know put the handlebar upright and then basically jumped on it and then put it back on the testing jig because that is a crazy thing to do. But in reality, it's exactly the failure mode that has happened here. Yeah, and and speaking to someone who has done a lot of work in this area previously. Um, on that very point, there, Dave was like the ISO standard does not include, you know, a, a, an impact like this. It, it doesn't have to for handlebars doesn't have to pass that. Um, but what what this person had told me was that if they do enough repetitions of the fatigue cycle, they can then extrapolate from that. Well, if it can take this much load this many times, it can take X amount more load in a once-off impact. Which I don't know. I prefer it just had an impact part part of the test uh with within mm-hmm. the standard but um I- either way the uh, i'm sure the archaea writers are, are pretty nervous at the moment if they're uh, i think if any of them crash they're going to be getting on spare bikes rather than assuming the bars on the bike that they crashed are, are fine you know and then have them checked out that evening by the, by the mechanic take off the bar tape get a proper look there. yeah yeah before we move on i think this is just you know it's a good reminder that carbon a lot of carbon components that are designed for racing aren't necessarily the most robust things after they've had an impact and it's it's probably just a good reminder that if you do have a a crash on a lightweight carbon bike then it's it's important that you get it inspected uh because it's yeah i mean these things are are not designed to take a significant impact and then have a serviceable life after that so what we don't really (laughs) think that uh uh, what's the takeaway? The take the takeaway is is if your bike falls down, in particular if you're uh, riding on northern French cobbles at the time, check over your handlebars very carefully before riding again. And otherwise, you know, we're not going to sit here and say that there's some some horrible issue with these with these Bianchi bars. Uh, it's a relatively unique circumstance, but I think is that the that's the primary takeaway. Just be careful with carbon bars. Yeah, I mean that's a different takeaway to what we we just discussed. But um, <laughs> Ronan, final thoughts. <laughs> uh, final thoughts for me are, yeah, basically just what what for me for me it is a reminder that if you have an an accident on a carbon handlebar that you do need to check it, um, preferably before doing it. Like even at the side of the road, if you if you if you look, your bar tape's badly cut up. Um, it's it's really worth checking that there and then. Uh, as for the actual incident itself, um, I, I I don't believe we're going to get any more information from Bianchi on this. I think they've made their statement. That's all they're going to say. But the statement didn't really. If I was an Archaea writer, um, the statement didn't do much to reassure me that there there isn't uh, an issue here. Yeah, fair enough. All right, shall we move on? Well, I was just going to say, in in the interest of time efficiency, we could maybe do our PSA right now, which is also on handlebars. Um, as as we move into, or as we move out of winter in the northern hemisphere, and and riders maybe take their bikes off the turbo trainers uh, or indoor trainers or whatever, is just that a reminder that sweat is highly corrosive. Uh, can can erode your your alloy handlebars and. If that happens and you're not aware, uh, your handlebars can break, much the same as we've seen with Hugo Hofstetter's this week, uh, and can the results can be nasty. So if 
your bike has been on the under trainer all winter, even if it hasn't, if it's been used on the trainer regularly through the winter and you've been sweating regularly through it, take off your handlebar tape, get a good look at it, check that it's okay. Uh, and the the point that I mentioned earlier was that I actually doing a sportif last August, um, about 80 miles into a hundred mile ride. I was alongside a rider whose handlebars broke because he, uh, well, because they had been subject to a lot of sweat and corrosion uh, over the previous winter. Worryingly at the time, he said to me, oh yeah, I, I noticed that last summer and forgot about it. Um, so this <laughs> could have been avoided. Uh, but even more worrying was his insistence to keep riding um, for the final 20 mile with half a handlebar. Um, my point to him was, you know, if one side is broken, the chances are the other side is ready to go also because they're probably both subject to the same amount of sweat. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but that was at least my way of trying to get him to, to, to stay clear of me because there's at least two, (laughs) at least two descents with gradients and, you know, double digits, uh, coming up. And there was another climb again with gradients and and the double digits coming up. So I, I didn't want him anywhere near me. (laughs) <laughs> uh yeah on that uh i've i've noticed a few brands lately have sort of updated their manuals to to basically suggest replacing your handlebar tape every six months to to prevent like i guess to ensure against this that you're you're actually giving yourself a chance to check your handlebar for galvanic corrosion or or other issues uh so that's that's quite important to say that if you are a heavy sweater you know you're a heavy sweater you know you do indoor cycling you know you're bad with your bike maintenance in terms of washing it off um, then yeah you should be uh <laughs> I don't, I don't you should be replacing fine. your <laughs> you should be replacing your bar tape more often just purely out of the precaution of it uh and also just don't ignore noises from your bike um chances are those those handlebars before they before they snap are starting to creak and and make uh some kind of noise and uh yeah that's noises are typically your your bike telling you something is wrong or singing to you, one of the, one of the two. Uh, I want to move <laughs> on to I want to I want to move on to Dirty Dirty Dave. Today's Dirty Dirty Dave is related to what we've we've sort of already teased and mentioned here, uh, but we can't get started without hearing this week's Dirty Dirty Dave anthem. Dirty Dave, Dirty Dave, Dirty 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 Dave. Now, Dave, let's get into this somewhat massive story. I, I was it you that were saying that this is the biggest launch uh, from any brand in in quite some time from from a sort a, of like impact on the industry and how bikes might work and and all the rest. Was that you saying? There's that? a friend slash former boss uh, Mick Ross of Low Mountain Bike uh, mm. was saying that, and I agree. Like he, yeah, it was basically saying it was the most coordinated product release he'd ever seen the bike industry do. And certainly, from my point of view, I mean, this is years in the making. Uh, you could argue that the whole universal derailleur hanger standard that's become a standard within new mountain bikes. I mean, that was. Uh, I heard someone call it the Trojan horse of derail hangers. Um, <laughs> but it was like, you could argue that that's ex- that existed with SRAM having a, a long-term goal of getting everyone to convert their frames over for this new derailleur. Yes. So I, I want to just, I want to unpack that a little bit, Dave. So yeah. explain what you mean for all the folks out there, what you mean by this universal derailleur hanger being a Trojan horse for what we saw Not my this words. morning. 
Not your words, but, but a fantastic way to describe yes. it. And, yeah. and I wanted to put it in my story, but it wasn't wasn't mine to use. So Ex- um, explain explain yourself. Yeah, so in 2019, SRAM introduced a derailleur hanger for manufacturers to adopt as a standard, and it was called the UDH. And basically what it was aiming to solve is, or what at the time everyone thought it was aiming to solve was that there were hundreds of different derailleur hangers on the market. Every frame manufacturer had their own shape of derailleur hanger, which holds the derailleur. And every frame manufacturer has multiple shapes of these across basically every model of bike they release. They often bring out a new derailleur hanger. And it was a big problem for the industry, but it was also a big problem for drivetrain manufacturers such as SRAM because the dimensions and the geometry of those derailleur hangers aren't always as consistent as they want. So in the case of their own derailleurs, they they wanted to build in a little bit of protection from that derailleur hanger. They wanted it to pivot backwards in case it got an impact. And that's what one of the things the UDH managed to achieve is if you actually hit the derailleur from the front, the, the whole hanger pivots backwards. Uh, the other thing they managed to do is build a little shelf in it. So if you don't adjust the derailleur correctly and it overshifts from your little 10-tooth cog, um, there's a little shelf that pops it back onto the 10-tooth the cog. Um, so the UDH solved all of these things, but most importantly and most impressively is that SRAM actually managed to get buy-in from basically everyone in the bike industry. And I'm struggling to think of any real known mountain bikes that came out since 2019 or since 2020 that haven't had this universal derailleur hanger uh, mount fitted. Uh, but yeah, as as a, as we were saying, is it's uh, the Trojan horse is that uh, yeah, it's it's basically that interface that SRAM has managed everyone to adopt. Uh, you remove that universal derailleur hanger, and that is what allows you to then fit this new direct mount derailleur of theirs uh which is sort of the basis of their entire new group set so if you have one of those sort of semi-recent bikes with the universal derailleur hanger then you Mm -hmm. could upgrade to this new stuff at any time correct yeah if you have a bike you can't if you you, it's as simple as that there's no there's no workaround no so shram will continue doing their previous generation eagle which connects to a regular derailleur hanger um and yeah if you've got an older bike like for example my 2020 ibis ripley which is in very in in many ways still an excellent and modern bike uh i can't fit this new sram gearing on that because it doesn't have a udh why did sram do this it's a good question uh they basically are trying to solve the biggest issues and biggest downsides of mountain of derailers on mountain bikes uh so the weakest points of a derailleur system on a mountain bike uh one the i guess the the mechanic knowledge required to set one up correctly and this definitely applied to eagle is that there was kind of a you could read the manual but then certain bikes still required uh an an experienced mechanic to be able to tweak it even further to really dial in that the B gap adjustment, which is how far the, the top pulley sits away from the cassette. And also like your chain length might not be exact to manual in uh, exact to the manual. In some cases, uh, there were these, these issues there that, yeah, I guess new consumers getting onto the bikes or mechanics with less experience might not be able to set up the derailers to be exactly as SRAM intended. So they sought to remove that from the equation the other big thing is that 12 speed requires precision. It requires a stiff derailleur interface. It requires perfect alignment. So that derailleur hanger has to be 
perfectly aligned. That's something we've discussed before. Uh, and that was an issue. And that's something the UDH tried to solve by being a much stiffer interface. But there were ways to make it even better. And uh, yeah, I think that's that's a key point is that as we've gone to 12 speed, as we've gone to these massive range cassettes, I mean, this is a 10 to 52 cassette. Uh, there's a lot of forces on that derailleur hanger. There's a lot of forces on that derailleur as you shift. And uh, yeah, that's something that this new design aims to solve is that it it actually can't bend. It You can't straighten it either. There's no way to straighten it, but it can't bend. Wasn't that the point of the hangers previously though, that, that- they would bend rather than, and I appreciate you've already gone on this in the article, but mm-hmm. yeah. So this is a, this is absolutely like the most common question. It's the most obvious question, which is why there's an entire section dedicated to it in the article. But yeah, the the question which is, which I is have like, read, <laughs> I've got that far. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the question is pretty obvious. It's like if the derailleur no longer has a derailleur hanger, the derailleur hanger previously used to be the the sacrificial lamb. It used to be what would bend or break in in order to save the derailleur and most importantly the frame so without a derailleur hanger surely something now has to break uh and i guess from my point is it would take the most ridiculous of impacts to to break this thing it is just so incredibly strong as a junction so what you've got going on here is tram have got the derailleur itself is is very overbuilt it's all metal in this area it's it's quite a lot of metal in the area it's it's a, quite a heavy derailleur uh, and that is reinforcing this new dropout design that's that's probably thicker than dropouts we've seen in, in previous years. Um, so the frame manufacturers are, are reinforcing this area as well. There's a lot of material there. But yeah, the derailleur basically sandwiches the dropout. So you've got reinforcement around the dropout. And then you've got this bolt that runs through the derailleur and through the dropout, reinforcing that connection. And then tying it all together is the rear through axle. So the rear through axle then slides into that dropout. So if you were to stand directly on the derailleur, it's it's perfectly rigid. You can kind of bounce up and down on it, and it doesn't really feel like it's flexing. It's more like a, like a crank set now, right? Like yeah, if like yeah. there's there's nothing there's no there's no built in failure mechanism with your cranks if you hit your cranks too hard, right? Because no, the assumption is that the amount of force required to damage a frame by impacting a pedal, for example, is so high that it's not a problem. And that is essentially the same idea here, which is that you, you, I mean, if we step all the way back, like the original reason for this, I mean, Dave, you and I were racing mountain bikes in in the late nineties and early two thousands. I used to go through like a couple derailers a, a season one, cause I was racing in Vermont and it was muddy and full of trees. And two, because derailers used to hang way out to the side and get clipped and broken all the time. And so as a result, you had to have some means of uh, somebody in the comment section re- referred to it as a mechanical fuse, uh, something that would just break off in an attempt to save your at that point, they were like $200 derailers, not $700 derailers, uh, but in an attempt to save your derailleur. Now, we kind of got to a point in the last couple of years, like I haven't broken a derailleur in knock on wood here in four or five seasons now and i ride in a place that is even nastier from a derailleur killing perspective it's full of rocks and full of sand all sorts of stuff. because they're more tucked in than they ever used to be because they're way more tucked in than they, than they were before and so then we get to this point where we started like i always went and found derailleur hangers that were stiffer than stock because it made yep. everything shift a lot better and this is kind of just another step beyond that which is okay we've tucked the derailers in they're a lot less likely to get hit in the first place 
and where they've essentially strengthened all of the mounting area behind it so that it's more like a, a crank's not a it's not a perfect analogy because you've got a whole bunch of like bottom bracket section no, stuff down good, there but like, i think that's the idea is like yeah. it's a good analogy yeah for me the the material like i can't emphasize how much material is in this area now where the derailleur connects to the frame you've got probably like a combined 15 mil of solid material just all being held together by that through axle and if you were to take a direct strike to that edge of the derailleur the through axle is holding it all rigidly together so it's not like the that part of the dropout is just gonna flex and snap out of the frame uh i'm really struggling to think of what would require to actually cause damage to the frame in this scenario uh, I think it would be the most we'll immense. Of it. <laughs> I I don't doubt it, but it's it's I'm I'm going to liken it to the sort of failures we see at World Cup downhill races, where you know someone's hit a tree at 50 kilometers per hour, and the frame, the front triangle of the frame, has completely sheared off. I think it's going to require that sort of failure mode to actually see an issue. Uh, riding along and smacking your derailleur on a rock at 40k an hour, I don't think is going to phase the system. Is is everything else as standard? Like, do you need a different three axle, or is how's wheel compatible? Is all that just yeah? So that's that, that remains with- yeah. That that was kind of what the UDH addressed. So it's all twelve mil through axle. They're all using the same axle pitch. Uh, so the UDH had standardized that. They'd standardized the chain line already. So nothing really brand new in that regard. Um, same wheels, even the same free hub body as before same bottom bracket as before it's still that dub spindle uh but yeah what's new is like there's a there's a new chain there's there's a new cassette we won't get into that because there's a there's an article for that but uh but yeah there is obviously a lot of new stuff uh and it is the same axis wireless protocol so you can still use all the old shifters you can mix and match it to like road shifters you can uh use the old mountain bike shifter and vice versa so what what we're going to have to get into i assume is mm. the price of this stuff uh a hundred and sixty dollar chain uh yeah so six hundred dollar cassette yeah so it's it, criminal uh <laughs> it's it's a hundred dollars as <laughs> That's a ridiculous. as a group set it's it's a hundred dollars less than previous eagle axis uh but i think what's important from my point of view is that the wear components have gone up in price so the cassette and the chain have noticeably jumped up in price potentially they're more durable than before so maybe maybe it might play out in, in balance but but yeah i mean we're talking like i think it was like 600 us dollars for the top end cassette and 150 us dollars for the top end chain i mean that that is a lot of money for a component that wears out um how do you how do you justify that with a chain like it, they didn't fundamentally redesign the chain it's still just a chain yeah it can't possibly cost them it that much more itself and and the the rumor <laughs> the rumor i, I heard understand. i haven't confirmed this tram but i think their other chains are going to go up in price to be more aligned to this um i guess in shram's defense their chains are the most durable on the market uh and you combine it with like a good wax lube you're getting ten thousand plus kilometers out of these chains but still this this is like you ever go to buy a a new iphone cable from like the actual apple Mm -hmm. store and and they're like 45 dollars for a thing that you could just you can find elsewhere, particularly like off brand, for like a dollar fifty. Have you used a dollar right? fifty cable though, Kaylee? They yeah, don't but it's last. not that much worse. I can <laughs> I can buy forty of them for the price of one of the Apple ones. You'll probably use the forty. It of feels, them. but no, but like like it's this is a known thing with yeah. with companies like Apple where they 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 jack up the prices of these mm. essentially consumables. It's not 
in, in a, you know, with a phone, it's maybe not consumable. It's you're going to lose it somewhere or whatever. But things that they know you're going to have to buy numerous times, they they get amazing margins on them. Uh, and I, it's the personal printer syndrome, isn't it? Where the printer is basically free. You're paying for the cartridges. Yeah, it's almost yeah, and, and almost that, I don't know. but not quite. Yeah, I don't recall if I don't think. Did you ask? Uh, Locky about this in particular, I don't recall in in the in the the deep dive. It's something I would like to ask Ram, and I don't want to sit here and just like accuse them of of jacking up the price on chains just to just to eke out a couple extra bucks. But I would like to hear an explanation for why a chain that is just a chain with slightly different shape is suddenly like chains used to be twenty five dollars. Yeah, but and they are, also and that that's an insane increase in cost. I'm gonna I'm gonna defend Tram here just purely on my own opinion, but chains that used to be twenty five dollars used to only also last a thousand kilometers on a mountain bike if you're lucky. Uh, they're very different material makeup. They're very different construction. Um, you know, this hundred and fifty US dollar chain is hollowed out through the pins. It's hollowed out in uh, in the plates. It's it's tr- is there a cheaper version? They they go down to a hundred US dollars for the cheapest version, and that's still a high end chain. I struggle to think of things I care about less than whether my chain is hollow. But the grams, Caleb, the grams. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think the main thing here is that they are using whatever construction method they're using is incredibly durable as far as chains go. And we're also seeing the same from the likes of Shimano and Campagnolo where their top end chains for these new 12 speed uh, variants, which are very narrow. So they need to be incredibly strong for the amount of material there. Um, They've all gone up in price quite a bit. And they're all a chain is quite expensive these days, uh, but I think yeah, the main thing to keep in mind here is that we're not talking about a chain that's designed to last a thousand kilometers anymore. We're talking about a chain that, if you take care of it off road, could probably withstand as much as ten thousand kilometers of use. So for many people, that might be the only chain they ever need to buy if they choose to clean it and use a good lube on it. Uh, if you don't use a good lube on it, then well, you deserve to buy new chains at one hundred and fifty US dollars. <laughs> That's the victim o- blaming me. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing you could do if if you ride a lot more than that, every time you buy one of these, you could save the offcuts, and then if you've got a short enough chain stay and <laughs> the right, you could you That's could make it, you could upcycle. You need, a, you need to start with a 126 link chain on this new drivetrain. So no, because yeah. we're gonna have 13, 14 speed drivetrains by the time you'd actually get enough of them. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We we've talked about this so many times. I just this like 150 dollar chain is. Mm. Oh, I'm not. I'm really? not. I'm not saying that that's that's a good thing. I'm just. I'm just saying. I think it's. It is worth keeping in mind just the durability associated with that price. Uh, it's also worth keeping in mind that there's chain loops that will make that you should be using now because your chain's 150 dollars. Mm. Uh, agreed. Uh, what I will say though is, as the only one of the three of us that doesn't do any uh, mountain biking, I so want to get into it because as the tech nerd that i am it, it's you know it's just everything about this review you've written dave and everything just about all the the conversation you guys had last week i, I have i effectively become a listener to this podcast when you start talking about my bike <laughs> but I, I, as a as a tech geek i i i am being a, a gadgety kind of person i'm always going to want to come in right at the very top end and um if i don't i'm always going to be looking at you know, what what else could i upgrade to and when I see these sorts of things, it's just like, yeah, maybe mountain biking's not for me. 
the uh well the i think it's worth talking about sort of what is coming mm. on the yeah. drop bar side a little bit because a lot of our audience is probably more more into that sort of thing at the moment uh because yeah in in recent years i would say most major technological shifts have come from mountain bikes first the exception being essentially like aerodynamic tweaks yeah. right but any sort of like major structural changes disc brakes yeah the, and the biggest yeah. one is disc brakes wider right? range which, gearing yeah. which has also led to i mean disc brakes you can you can draw a straight line from disc brakes to watt van Aert's bike at milan san remo right like most of the things that were on that bike the one by the big wide 30 mil tires and huge wide rims and all these things like all that stuff starts with the decision to take rim brakes off of road bikes anyway so it, my point being is that this is a recurring theme and it's worth talking about where this is going so are we going to have uh, what's the uh, direct mount isn't even the term like what's the term for what's the term they've got their own term i didn't use it in my story they're using the word transmission which i yeah. refuse to use yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're calling it a transmission, uh, whereas the old Eagle thing was called a drivetrain. That's just how they're separating it, rather than going through the trouble of coming up with a whole new name for this stuff. I will continue to call it a drivetrain. But what is this? What is the what is the derailleur mount? That's called? that's the word I didn't I didn't use. They do have a specific word for it, which uh, I'm sounding quite foolish now, having written six thousand words and I don't even know what they call it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I'm just calling it a direct mount interface. That's that's something people okay. are actually going to remember. Uh, but yeah, for for me, I think I think there's too much tangible benefit here on offer for SRAM not to be thinking already about pushing this into the drop bar space. Uh, and there are some drop bar bikes that have the udh the new mb mog and the new yt sepster gravel bikes can actually use this new drivetrain i'm sure there will be more that have come to to allow that sort of mullet group but i think in the road like there's actual aerodynamic benefits there's there's post crash benefits here uh i think from a performance point of view i actually can't see why shram wouldn't be pushing for a road version of the universal derail hanger to to come out what's shimano doing that's a good question because that's and that's something I, I touched on in the article is that SRAM have been very dominant in the mountain bike space and they have the pull to to make these changes in the mountain bike space. They have the pull to get the whole industry to adopt this universal derailleur hanger. They're not as dominant in the road space. Shimano still owns that road space. And I think that might be the answer is potentially the industry will go with whatever Shimano is doing versus what SRAM's doing in this space. It's an interesting one. But yeah, both brands, Shimano, were working on direct mount hangers well before SRAM released theirs. Uh, Shimano's go back to like 2013, where they were first playing with the idea. They've been pushing them since. Even current Durace, in theory, uses a direct mount hanger interface. Uh, the difference is, is that SRAM's requires the frame manufacturer to adopt to it, whereas uh, Shimano's really just is a different shaped hanger. And, and what is it that the the frames is it wider at the at the drop or what what's the difference that they need manufacturers to adopt there it's the shape of the hanger basically it's it's yeah it's not necessarily it's a little bit wider because the derailleur hanger was quite thick it was actually made of a it was actually plastic the derailleur hanger uh, on a udh uh but i yeah that's the main thing is it is probably a little bit thicker than a lot of the dropouts currently being used um and it, it does add a little bit of width in that regard but yeah it's, it's realistically it's just it's a shape adoption 
I do think they'll, they'll need to do a road version of the Universal Drail Hanger in order for it to be adopted in the drop bar space. If they did do a road version of the UDH, that then would be compatible with the other two group sets or any any other derider, uh, but could also potentially be compatible if they bring... And the name I'm going to use for it is the Sandwich Mount. Uh, mm. If they bring the Sandwich like Mount to, to road. Mm. Uh, I think I I would imagine if they brought it to road, they'd probably have yet another whole new derailleur sizing. Sorry, like, when I know, say road, yeah. sorry, I mean drop bar. Sorry. Yeah, so I think that's already happening. So gravel bikes are adopting this mountain bike style uh, UDH. We're, we are seeing that already, and I think that'll become more common to allow this this mountain bike derailleur to be fitted. And keeping in mind, it's it's with that UDH fitted, it's it's backwards compatible to every other. It's a, you know with the UDH derailleur hanger fitted, it's just a derailleur hanger so you can fit every other derailleur still on that bike uh but yeah i think if we were to see it in the true road space i think it'll be a yet another system oh good mm. <laughs> but we'll see we'll see right <clears throat> i mean, yeah we, we didn't even talk about like i mean we i guess we kind of talked about why the real like the real why is is just it's so much stiffer that you can shift yeah like under crazy loads and and all sorts of, the, of I mean the the things. real why behind this is because of e-bikes fundamentally right. right like e-bikes have changed the game in that the consumer now expects to be able to shift under 600 watts or more you know with with <laughs> no backing off the power there's no more technique in shifting so that's why Shimano had Hyperglide Plus uh 12 speed which is designed yep. for shifting under power and realistically, this is SRAM's answer to that, is it's a drivetrain that you can just put all your weight through the pedals and shift, and it'll be fine. Uh, and it'll actually feel quite good doing it. Uh, and that's that's all driven by e-bikes. And e-bikes also, you know, they're heavy. So if you, if you get a little sideways in a corner and you hit the derailleur against a rock on an e-bike, there's 30 kilos of, of bike pushing against that derailleur plus you. Uh, it's just a lot heavier on components than previous mount- than mountain biking ever was in the past, uh, and yeah, that's all this is. Is it's it's designed to be robust enough for e bike usage, um, and I think regular analog bikes benefit from it too. Well, if that half hour conversation wasn't enough for you, uh, there's there's six thousand words waiting for you at escapecollective.cc. As a reminder, Rome gets to write six thousand word treatises on new stuff uh because of our members so if you're not a member and you're reading such things and you're listening to this podcast you are a freeloader and you should uh <laughs> should maybe heavily consider your choices in life <laughs> no that's a little rude <laughs> that was a hard sell right there uh, uh no seriously <laughs> sign up if you can we really appreciate it and uh yeah, thanks, Dave, for spending all the time. How, how long have you been on this stuff? I forgot to ask. Uh, I got it a, a bit over a month ago, I think. So, yeah, it's it's been a little while. I haven't had the distance that I want on it, so I haven't been able to really judge, say, cassette wear. But, but yeah, I've got a few hundred off-road Ks on it and uh, been completely flawless to date. A um, few hundred off-road Ks on it, plus hitting it with a hammer lots and uh, trying to smack it into trees and stuff as I ride. There. There's a video on the Escape uh, Instagram if you want to see Dave hit it with a hammer 
Uh, I, of course, as the hammer, am mm-hmm. getting tagged in this video over and over and over and over again. So I appreciate that from everybody. Uh, yeah, I, it, this is just a total aside, but I appreciate SRAM getting this stuff to media early, mm-hmm. right? And they got it to you before we even fully yeah i actually got it to it which i got to it a bit late compared to some others um but right at the same time that also meant i got the the fanciest and nicest version of it which others didn't get there you go yeah (laughs) there you go lucky you dude Mm. anyway i I like that i like that as a uh as a trend right because what would have happened not that long ago was you would have been flown to somewhere uh some island probably off the off of europe somewhere yeah and you would have been given like 36 hours to ride this stuff on a bike you didn't know and trails you didn't know and you would have been asked to then write a a you know some sort of first ride review slash launch story you know everything would be under embargo so it would give you a couple days to turn it around which you know that was at least when i first started doing this in like what 2010 sometimes the stuff wasn't even under embargo so you'd like you go ride the thing you basically had to decide, do I want to ride this for an extra two hours and actually get an opinion of it? Or do I go back and essentially like beat the rest of the competition to getting a story up? Like just completely perverse incentives, right? Like, like talk about the best. Let's, let's try to come up with the best way for these stories to be absolute useless garbage. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how you would do it. Thankfully, we moved on from that. Yeah. But this is another – it's another good step. Yeah. So kudos to SRAM for yeah. and it was ins- getting you stuff early. Yeah. And I and, got to put it onto my own bike. So, I mean, I got to keep that exactly. controlled. Yeah, it was, it was just really well it's done. It's huge. Yeah. Really, really well done on, on SRAM's part. Uh, you know, we, we we pull back the curtain on, I think, on a fair number of things on this podcast. And I I think that's one of them that we should probably do more often. So, like, how, how the media sausage is made uh, because, yeah – how brands sort of treat these things has a material impact on the quality of the story that we can provide for all of you out there. Uh, the more time yeah. that Dave has on this thing, the the better the piece that he's going to write. And so actually this is another, this isn't, wasn't intended to be a plug here, but we're in discussing internally kind of how to deal with launches where we don't get the stuff early or, basically times when you know something is handed to us and 36 hours later we have to write a story about it and where we're landing at the moment and for those of you who are members who uh, are on the the member discord I'd, I'd love feedback on this but where we're landing at the moment is that i don't think we'll write much at embargo time unless mm. we actually have had enough time to form an opinion basically yeah. Uh, yep. that's kind of where we're at right now because again, like we don't need the page views that we perhaps needed in a previous life. Uh, we just need to make our audience happy. And so from that perspective, I, I think that's where we're kind of, yeah, that's where we're landing at this point in time is that yeah. we're not going to review stuff with less than, uh, I don't know. We're not going to put a number on it, but a, a reasonable amount of time and distance and a, on a product. and a confident opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think the thing we can promise is that the traditional first ride review, that review that everyone seems to have from a press camp that that comes out at the time of embargo, um, that's not something we're going to do. Yeah. You know, we we might we might cover the release, but we probably hold our opinion until we can be confident in that opinion. Uh, and yeah, it's not going to be based on a single a single ride in a foreign place. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So maybe there's a story that goes up with just like a you know pile of photos and some basic info because that that we can do. You know, we can turn that yep. around 
quite quickly. Uh, hmm. But yeah, we're just not going to do the we're not going to do the, the the day one first ride review thing. So because it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for us. It doesn't make any sense for the audience. It doesn't make any sense hmm. for 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 that to exist. <laughs> just a useless useless yeah. piece of piece of content uh, driven again by sort of the way that that media has has been forced to work for a very long time. So. I don't know. Maybe we can affect some broader change on that front as well. So I didn't really intend to go on that tangent. Uh, we, we are good tangent. We're already an hour in, guys, uh, and uh, we have. I we think have, people are happy to do a bit longer. We've covered like a third of the things that we said we were going to talk about. So we're going to pick a couple more. This is going to be a slightly longer episode. I think that that's fine. Let's get to let's get to something we've actually wanted to talk about for a couple episodes here, which is the industry glut the overstock and clearance sales that are popping up. Dave, what's, um, what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, we, we know, we've we been hearing about this. Anyone in the industry has been talking about it for a good probably six months now that from the from the boom where we're going to see a little bit of doom, uh, a lot of brands jumped on in terms of increasing their, their manufacturing capacity, their, their stockholds, to to meet demand and a lot of that stock has arrived at a time when the demand has actually fallen back down and people aren't spending as much on bikes and people are now back in there going back to the gym and back into a a a worse work-life balance uh and the bike industry is feeling the effects so in australia i've certainly been seeing a vast majority of our biggest retail chains having massive sales like 40 50 percent off uh, what you would think is popular stock. Uh, I've seen wholesalers trying to do direct-to-consumer sales to just try and move stock through. Cash flow is getting tough. And I guess this week what broke in the industry is that uh, there was, there's a bit of news of a, a very large liquidation from um, one of the UK's larger distributors, uh, which is more large. Uh, more is in the uh, a family name, M-O-O-R-E, uh, and yeah, they, they basically, uh, they're in liquidation at the moment and the numbers are pretty staggering. I mean, they they've got 35 million pounds of stock value that has to be liquidated. Uh, and that includes, but is is not limited to, uh, 35,000 bikes that are going to be auctioned off for like pennies on the dollar. That's going to really help the industry as well. <laughs> Yeah, right? exactly. So, oh, so yeah, basically, yeah. like we're just in this downward spiral of the more, yeah, these sort of issues. The more these sales happen, the the further the issues are just going to extend because there's only so much of the stock you can actually move into the market. And what this is going to do is thirty five thousand bikes discounted is actually just going to further clog up the market for other distributors that are already struggling for cash and that are already struggling to move on stock and. Unfortunately, I think the domino effect of this is going to be pretty severe over the next twelve months. Yeah, there's 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 already there was a news uh, piece that I seen last week, the week before. Silverfish, Silverfish, another UK uh, mm-hmm. distributor, yep. had had got a had secured a round of investment just to sort of help them uh, basically weather the the storm at the moment. Uh, there's at least uh, a couple of other distributors who are are finding things tight at the at the moment from from what i understand it's not necessarily at the moment a huge drop off in terms of demand it's just the the supply is uh where where 
where during the pandemic where we needed supply within the industry and everybody wanted to buy a bike but couldn't get one there was no supply that has now flipped in that uh distributors uh bike shops everybody is, is sitting on huge amounts of stock uh, and although the demand is still up on where it was even pre-pandemic it's not up enough to to get these bikes moving quick enough that and it's effectively just a cash flow problem yeah exactly and it's yeah i guess the worry here is that uh we're going to see a lot of independent bicycle dealers so bike shops that that are separate of of brand ownership uh they're going to struggle greatly through the next little while because the stock that they're sitting on they need to move that out in order to survive and they unfortunately i mean that stock's just isn't moving and a lot of them invested in a lot more stock than they'd previously had say back in 2019 so that's going to become a cash flow issue that's then that then flows directly onto the distributors who now can't get paid for the stock that they've handed out often on say 60 to 90 day payment terms so then they can't pay uh then those get you know that gets passed on to the manufacturers so all of Basically, the whole industry is going to struggle through this, but it's it's going to see some pretty significant um, consolidation of the industry, I think, over the next 12 months. Uh, and I, unfortunately, I also think, like, yeah, just going back to the independent bike shops, I think a lot of those are going to get snatched up at discounted prices by by these big brands that, that still have some cash coming in and still have cash reserves. Uh, and yeah, unfortunately, those those independent bike shops that sort of make the the lifeblood of the bike industry that that give us the small you know give us access to these small hard to find products give a, give the community feel uh, i think a lot of them are going to go away and, and be replaced by these fairly generic brand owned bike shops i think the longer term uh, or the the independent bike shops who have been around for i don't know 15 20 30 years and have that history there and potentially you know are their own landlords those are maybe the independent shops who who stand in the best position to be able to to weather the storm, but even there, I think uh, the word you use consolidation. I, I think we're even going to see that uh, across no matter what bike shop we're going to we're going to walk into for the foreseeable future. We're we're probably going to see a scenario where these shops are focusing on their core brands and just the choice that we previously would have had is, is going to be greatly reduced. And that's yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. uh, and that's. This is a very dangerous time because, and this is a huge topic on itself, maybe we can return to this, but the more the retailers struggle to move the stock that they have, the more stock sits at the distributors and at the brand subsidiaries warehouses, they have to move that stock. So if they can't move it through their regular retail channels, they are going to be forced to open up their own channels which is exactly what we're seeing at the moment. We've seen Specialized do consumer direct sales of, of bikes they're overstocked in. Uh, we're seeing other brands do this. I think all of this is just going to push the bike industry to rapidly get into consumer direct channels. Uh, and again, that's just another threat for the independent bike dealer. But for me, that's kind of sad because it's going to be a compromise to product and it's going to be a compromise to service long term. Uh, and these bikes are very complicated these days and do need local service. You need hands-on service. And I don't think the industry is really that well-equipped for, for what's about to happen. Just one last thing on Mur Large before we move on is that um, it, it was actually, they're actually a distributor that I had an account with when I work with Sustrans. Uh, and they, they, they did a lot of 
The reason we had the accounts there is because we were working in schools and Murillards did a lot of that end of the, the bicycle trade where, you know, kids bike and lower end stuff. And if you needed helmets or you needed, you know, just this, just the sort of stuff that you would be using for kids or, um, at, at the, at the lower end of, of the, the price, price market. Family price bikes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I'm trying to find the right words there and just getting, uh, more and more yeah. lost. Uh, but anyway, maybe like J, like, like J and B for our U S listeners. If you ever worked in a shop in the U S probably this is the closest, uh, analog there you guys don't you don't have jmb internationally right anyway <laughs> yes for our u.s listeners that's a rough probably equivalent mm. uh, and the point i was just going to make is that actually it's kind of a, an indication as well as just you know the with the with the global sort of cost of living crisis that's happening at the moment as well it's 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 the people who are tending to look towards those bikes that are also feeding the pints most in this in this cost of living crisis and hence are not going out to buy bikes so while you know uh the higher end road bikes and racing bikes might still have demand there uh someone looking for uh, a new bike for their kid who already has a bike or someone looking for uh you know a two or three hundred pound bike to get to work um uh, while every bill that comes through their door is double what it was this time last year that very quickly falls down the the priority list and and you know that's it's there are other distributors who are who are working in in that segment of the market also uh and they're as we said earlier about consolidation like it's we we, we the, the point i'm trying to get to is that unfortunately Murlards might not be the last um for no no i don't think they will be um and there theirs is particularly bad timing should i say because they just went through a buyout last year they they the business got sold from family ownership off to a new board of directors and new ownership. And obviously that didn't work out. Uh, but I think, yeah, the, the key thing here is that the highest end of the market, the, the top end road bikes, top end mountain bikes, there's always going to be demand for that because that level of income is just less affected through, um, you know, financial crises and, and, uh, general uh issues in in the economy um and that though that market is actually still seeing some supply issues as a result of that you know new durace bikes for example are still kind of trickling through at a slower rate than than the demand is right now but it's it's everything else in the bike industry it's it's the family market it's the community market it's it's the bread and butter to the industry and where the majority of sales happen that is what is all slowed down to the point that that stock is now just stale basically like the shops can't move it the distributors can't move it and that is the stuff where all these distributors are, are very heavily invested in uh and are going to struggle bad news Murlards actually did a heck of a lot before just before christmas actually to try and move a lot of the stock and i actually moved a lot mm-hmm. of it uh from from what i yeah. hear but it just you know it, it, the depth of this the situation it just wasn't enough apparently no no, I mean being left with thirty-five thousand bikes. I mean, if you can imagine, even if they potentially moved as much as half their stock, I mean that is a huge, huge figure to to overcome. And and all of that is is fundamentally, I mean, what we're talking about is is greed, right? Like it's there was this huge boom from from COVID, and all these distributors were like, okay, we've got three, four hundred percent increase in demand. Let's capitalize on that. Let's get stock to meet that demand. And because of the timeline of all this, that stock arrived after the demand. Uh, and I think that's 
fundamentally what's happened here is the brands and the retailers and the distributors who were, I guess, were smart enough to know that these booms are short term and that it's cyclical and that it's happened in the industry before, that it, it comes and goes and they are adverse to substantial growth. They're the ones that are going to be fine. So Shimano, for example, they didn't grow at a, at the rate that they're being demanded to, and people were angry with them at that. But so they Shimano just, is a perfect example. <laughs> yeah, Shimano is a perfect example. They're like, oh, if anything, I think it was something like anything more than five percent growth in a year is considered uh, a liability to them. So they just stuck to their guns. They they expanded production a little bit, but not to the extent that everyone else did. Uh, and I think that's those businesses are, are perfectly fine now, right? They're like, great, we're, we're in a perfect position. We haven't overcommitted ourselves. It's the other brands that try to capitalize on wow. on the potential growth. That's that's where we're seeing the issue. And unfortunately, the, pre, the ones that could have become winners are unfortunately the ones that are going to be the losers. Well, on that somber note, mm. <laughs> I think it's time for, I think it's time for us to, to wrap up for the day. We're, we're going to skip on our minds and over the heads of our family today because we've had enough yammering yeah. in the last hour and 15 minutes. Please go sign up to escapecollective.cc. We really appreciate it. I think you'll appreciate it. I think you'll like what we're doing. Uh, we, we've only just barely gotten started and there's already some amazing stuff up on the site. And yeah, I think you'll really, I think you'll really enjoy it. All you folks out there. So go check it out, go sign up and, uh, We'll be back next week with another geek warning. That's an important point there. I don't think you've actually, this is our first episode since the site actually went live. And I don't think we've said at any point that the site is actually up there. Now, if you want to go and <laughs> look at it, escapecollective.cc. Uh, probably should have put that at the start, shouldn't we? Eh, they'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Like I said, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.